Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made, this Lord's Day, where uh, we have the privilege of gathering as uh, the body of Christ here at Hope Bible Church and worshiping you together. We thank you for this opportunity right now to study your word. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you have revealed yourself uh, as the sovereign, almighty creator of the universe and how you have revealed yourself through history from the very beginning to the very end. And uh, now that you, and now here in this book of Revelation, you reveal the things that uh, will take place in the future. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for who you are, but also for what you've done. Uh, we thank you for the love and mercy and grace that you showered on us in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the sin, die on the cross for our sins. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds as we study your word, and through your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand what you're trying to teach us from your word, and also that we would be able to apply these truths and these principles to our lives so that we would be better followers of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all the things that make up your character we thank you for the people that you've brought into our lives such that we can uh, work together uh, the way that you've designed the body of Christ with different gifts and abilities so that we can fit together and we can encourage one another and love one another and, and build one another up. We thank you for all of that, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so uh, this uh, journey through Revelation is a 39-part series, and it's in three quarters. And so the first quarter is 13 parts, and we're up to page, uh, part 12. So we've got this week and next week in the first uh, quarter, uh, essentially the first one-third of what we're going to go through in the book of Revelation. Um, I will not be here next Sunday. Uh, I have um, my my nine to five Monday through Friday job is going to have me uh, on a business trip to Japan. So I'll be in Tokyo um, next week. Um, I'll be back just in time for the class after that. So when does this class end? So this class. Uh, so the so the this quarter this quarter. Uh, ends next week. So next week is the is the, is the 26th. is the last one in this quarter. And so you have to re-register for another quarter if you want to keep going in Revelation. Um, and so the, the actual study on Revelation is going to go three quarters. So this one, the next one, and the one after that. And they're all 13 weeks, so it's 13, 13, 13, 39. So 39 uh, Sundays. But I won't be here next week. And so I'm working on getting somebody to, uh, to step in. I don't know who that's going to be yet. But somebody will be standing here. Uh, I, somebody not me, because I'll be in Tokyo. Um, but I have my notes, and I'll, whoever's going to teach will have my notes. They can use my notes if they want, or they can do it do their own thing. It'll be uh, Revelation chapter 5 uh, next week. So chapter 4 this week, chapter 5 next week. Um, 
So I'm, I'm searching for my replacement. I hope to have that nailed down soon. I hope by the end of the day today. Uh, yeah, are you? So, uh, so here's our, our schedule. So uh, we've been through the letters. Uh, we finished the last of the letters last time. Uh, now we get some uh, additional visions. We get a trip to heaven, a vision of heaven that John uh, has, and that's really going to be a, a single vision that goes chapter four and chapter five. And then we get into the tribulation after that. So, um, yeah, so, so this chapter 4 and chapter 5 is kind of the transition from um, the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that will take place. Uh, we're transitioning from the things that are to the things that will take place in chapter 4 and 5. Okay, so what we're going to learn, we're going to have a trip to heaven, a vision, uh, he's going to go in the spirit, John says, to heaven. Uh, we're going to see the throne there, that's really the emphasis of chapter 4, the throne of God. We'll see who's on the throne, we'll see what's around the throne, we'll see what's coming from the throne, we'll see what's before the throne, we'll see what's in and around the throne, and we'll see what's being directed toward the throne. But the focus is the throne of God. But before that, let's do a little review of where we were last week. Uh, so we have these seven messages to the seven churches. And uh, just as a summary, uh, John has a, a vision of Christ, the risen Christ. And then there are seven letters from the risen Christ to the seven churches, but they are given via seven messengers. So we have seven messengers taking seven letters to the seven churches. Now, it doesn't tell us in the, in the text exactly how what the mechanics of that are. Uh, but the, the commentaries that I read that seem to be the most, most faithful uh, do what I think is a reasonable speculation to say that these seven messengers were seven human messengers, most likely the leaders, the elders of each one of those churches. And so since John could not leave Patmos, he was exiled there, he couldn't leave. The only way for those letters to go off Patmos was for these seven messengers to come to Patmos and get the seven letters and then take them around. And we saw the route from Ephesus. This is the first place they landed and then they go all the way around. Uh, and the very last one is Laodicea. But most likely, um, the seven messengers, like the guy from Ephesus, he has his letter. He reads his letter out to his church. He most likely didn't then continue on the circuit. He stayed with his church. And so uh, that's, I think, pretty good informed speculation that you had seven messengers at the first church. Second church, it was down to six because the guy from Ephesus stayed. And so on all the way around to the guy from Laodicea ends up at his own church, and that's it. Um, that's what... Um, I think is how the mechanics worked. Although those kind of specifics, of course, are not in the text. So um, the Lord Jesus Christ introduced himself in each one of those letters at the beginning. In this letter to Laodicea, he introduces himself as the Amen. Uh, and that Amen is a Hebrew word translated, literated into Greek. It means truth or affirmation or certainty, uh, fixed and unchangeable. He also describes himself as the faithful and true witness. So not only is he the Amen, but he's also... Uh, a witness. Whatever he speaks is true. He's the faithful witness. And then he also introduces himself as the beginning of the creation. And that Greek word, arche, um, 
me, me, translated beginning, it means uh, the origin or the source. Uh, in that sense, beginning as in the origin or the source. So the origin or the source of creation is what that Greek word means there. Uh, as with the last several churches, there is no specific information in the New Testament about how this church was founded. Um, Paul did not found it because uh, in the book of Colossians he says he has never been there and he's hoping to go. Um, Paul's co-worker Epaphras founded the nearby church in Colossae and so he may have founded it but we don't know for certain. Uh, the city itself uh, is in the Lycus uh, Valley, and it's the southeasternmost of the seven cities. It's very close to Colossae and Hierapolis, so it was a three-city, kind of three-sister cities there. Uh, it was vulnerable to attack because it, had to, it didn't have its own water supply. It had to bring in water by aqueduct, and so um, the aqueduct could be blocked, and then the enemy could come in because you could, uh, everybody was dying of thirst. Uh, but that idea that they had to bring water in by aqueduct comes into the letter later on. Uh, it was also uh, a very wealthy financial and banking center, uh, famous for soft black wool that they had, and also famous as a center for medicine. In particular, they made a special eye salve um, that was uh, much sought after in the Mediterranean world. And so uh, Jesus used all three of those things that made the city famous, banking and finance, the wool, and the eye salve in the letter. So he re rebuked them first of all for not being cold or hot, but being lukewarm. Uh, that's a metaphor from the water supply, which had to come by aqueduct, so it was uh, kind of tepid and dirty when it came in. Um, as, a, as opposed to the sister cities, Hierapolis was famous for hot springs. Colossae was famous for a cold stream, uh, but Laodicea had lukewarm, tepid water. So the, the Lord uses that um, uh, well-known fact at the time uh, to form part of his, uh, the analogy, the spiritual analogy that he makes is rooted in something physical, and he did that all the time in his earthly ministry. Uh, he made parables based on farming and things like that that people knew. Uh, and then he gives them this sharp rebuke, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of your mouth. Um, and so he talked about this kind of people in Matthew 7, uh, people that would say, Lord, Lord, and he would say, I never knew you, depart from me. Um, they also had a, quite a bit of self-deception. Uh, they believed they were rich, but Christ's assessment was different. You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Uh, similar to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, he was, he was spiritually self-deceived. He could have, Jesus could have instantly uh, judged and destroyed this church. Uh, there are instances of instant judgment in the Bible, like, um, uh, well, Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, um, Ananias and Sapphira that just dropped dead when they, uh, when they lied to Peter. Uh, there are instances of instant judgment, but he didn't do that in this case. He advised, he, he, uh, he gave them a gracious offer of genuine salvation. He said, buy from me, and the things that he, he said, buy from me, are the things that uh, were kind of um, tied to things that were familiar to the city. 
uh, gold, buy from me gold, not the kind of gold that you have from your banking and finance, buy from me white garments, not the kind of garments that you have from your fine black wool, and buy from me eye salve, not your uh, eye salve that's so famous that you think is so famous. You need real eye salve from me to open your eyes so you're not, so that you can see. Uh, then he goes on to, um, to talk about um, the discipline, uh, discipline referring to, to punishment, um, and the fact that they needed to repent. Uh, if you're saved, you have to be zealous and repent. And so he follows this call for repentance with an invitation in verse 20. Uh, he talks about the, he stands at the door. Christ stood at the door of the Laodicean church and he knocked. And if anyone would, would hear his voice and open the door, they could come in and dine with him and he uh, with Christ. So there's a, a call to repentance and an offer um, of invitation, uh, an invitation for what would happen if they repented. Uh, and then there's the, this, um, each of the seven letters have, at, towards the end, something about uh, what, the, what, the, um, what the, a promise to those who overcome, promise to those who are true believers. Uh, he who overcomes is the way it is, the, the f way the phrase is written in each of these letters. And in this letter, he says he will grant them to sit down with him on his throne as he also overcame and sat down on his father's throne. So that's the promise. Uh, there's a promise like that in the other letters. Uh, so as we've gone through these seven letters, uh, the overcomers are promised the privilege of eating of the tree of life, promised the crown of life, promised protection from the second death, promised the hidden manna, a white stone with a new name written on it, authority to rule the nations, promised the morning star, promised white garments, promised the honor of having Christ confess their names before God the Father and before the, the angels, promised to be a pillar in God's temple, promised to have written on them the name of God and the new Jerusalem and of the Christ. So all these promises piled up one after the other, after the other, after the other, for he who overcomes. Those who are true believers that persevere to the end, this is what you get. This is what's promised uh, from Christ. And there's these promises, if, if we read them out from all seven letters, they're just a staggering promises uh, to believers here. Uh, so, and at the end, of course, of this letter, like all the others, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just, of course, for that church. The Holy Spirit made sure that this was recorded in Scripture so that we can read it too. Uh, so that all believers for all time have been able to read uh, what the Spirit says to the churches, not just the members of those churches. Um, and so the call is obvious, repent, open, uh, open the door to Christ before the judgment falls. Um, so that was what we did last time. Uh, any questions about that? Any questions about that letter or any of the other letters? So, um, so the, the physical analogy was, it was a little tri-city area, uh, with Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae. And Hierapolis was famous for hot springs. And so that's really nice, the hot night hot spring water. Colossae was famous for a real cool uh, kind of mountain stream, cold water. Laodicea was f famous for having this lukewarm, tepid kind of nasty water that had to come in by aqueduct. And so Christ is using that physical reality to make a spiritual point. And his spiritual point is, hot is a true believer. 
cold is somebody that's outright rejected the gospel and, and is not a hypocrite. They've just said they've rejected. Lukewarm in the spiritual analogy, analogy is somebody who is a, a fake believer, someone who pretends that they're a Christian and are not. And uh, his point is that person is in a lot more danger. You, you, you still, um, you, you know, you still there's a, still a possibility to evangelize that person that has rejected up to this point. This this person is lukewarm, doesn't think he needs the gospel because he thinks he's already saved. He's the person who goes to Christ in Matthew seven and says, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name?" And, and Christ says, I, "I never knew you." Um, and so that's the spiritual analogy there. So, so Hot, cold, and lukewarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so as with any kind of analogy, it's it's not perfect. I mean, you can't take it too far, too far. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, the people that were cold, they're not in good shape either, uh, in the spiritual analogy. Uh, but in some ways, the people that are lukewarm are worse because they think they're saved. Um, we have the in Matthew 7, we have the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, who um, he, he came to Jesus uh, saying, how do I earn salvation? Jesus said, he rattled off commandments. And the rich young ruler said, all of these I have kept. That's what he said to Jesus. When Jesus rattled off the law, so he, in his mind, he had perfectly kept the law. Um, that's a dangerous place to be. He, he thinks he's in good standing with God, and he's not. And so um, that was the, the, the point, I think, being made, the spiritual point being made by the, the lukewarmness. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go into Revelation chapter 4 now. Um, so open your Bibles or your devices and uh, turn to Revelation chapter four. Uh, we're going to do the, We're going to go through the whole chapter. It's only eleven verses. Uh, so the whole of chapter four today. So this is the word of the Lord. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was, he was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning upon, before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Wow. That's the vision that John sees. He, he's taken in the Spirit, and he's, that's what he sees. Uh, and he's written down, and he's trying to explain what he sees in words that are intelligible to us. Um, and so, uh, before we launch into the verse by verse, I just uh, uh, plucked a little part of uh, John MacArthur's commentary. Um, and he, John MacArthur says this, in contrast to the fanciful, bizarre, and often silly fabrications of those who falsely claim to have visited heaven, the Bible records the accounts of two people who actually were taken there in visions. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul wrote of being transported to the third heaven, the abode of God, but he was forbidden to speak of what he saw there. So he, Paul saw something, but he wasn't allowed to speak and write it down. John saw something and he's allowed to write it down. The Apostle John also had the inestimable privilege of visiting heaven. Unlike Paul, John was permitted to give a detailed description of his vision, which he did in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. In those two chapters, John recorded the second vision he saw, the first being his vision of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, 12-17. The Bible refers to heaven more than 500 times, and others, such as Paul and Ezekiel, wrote descriptions of it, yet John John's description in chapter 4 and 5 is the most complete and informative in all of Scripture. Escorted by the beloved apostle, readers are carried far beyond the mundane features of this temporal realm to behold the realities of eternal heaven. Through John's vision, believers have the privilege of previewing the place where they will live forever. Amen. So, uh, let's take a look at this vision that John had. It's, it's actually two chapters, chapter 4, which we'll do today. Chapter 5 will be next week. Um, but here's how he starts out in, in chapter 4. So, uh, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So the first occurrence of the phrase, after these things, right at the very beginning there, verse 1, relates to John's personal chronology. So this is for John. Um, it notes that this second vision followed immediately after John's vision of the risen Christ in verse 1, and the letters to the seven churches in 2 and 3. So, verse uh, chapter 1, God has a vision of the risen, glorified Christ. Then, in chapters 2 and 3, we have the letters that we've just been through. So, these letters are uh, revealed and, and written down. And then, in John's chronology, after these things, so after that has happened, this is what happens next for John. After these things, I looked. So I, John, looked. So this is John's chronology after these things. Um, the, 
the phrase after these things used throughout Revelation to mark the beginning of a new vision. That's the way it is here in chapter 7 and chapter 15 and chapter 18 and chapter 19. After these things, yes? Why do you use the word vision when he's actually So it says in the spirit. So it's not, um, it's not physical. Uh, it's not a physical thing, uh, uh, time, space, matter, energy. It's in the spirit. So it's a little bit different. Uh, and I think th that's why the distinction is made in the spirit. So, that's, so there's twice after these things occurs, though. So after these things, John's chronology. Uh, but when Jesus says it, Jesus says what must take place after these things, that's God's chronology. See the difference there? After these things I, for John, but then Jesus says, I will tell you what must take place after these things. Now we're talking about God's chronology. Three basic divisions, the things which are, which things that, uh, things that have been, things that are, things that will take place after these. Uh, th this is the next step in that. So uh, we've seen the things that, uh, that have been. We've seen now the things which are in chapters 2 and 3. Now in chapters 4 and 5, we're making the transition to the things that uh, will take place after these things. So uh, the things which will take place, the future. So we're, and so this is the kind of the prologue to those future events, the transition, if you will, from the present to the future, chapters 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 6 begins the, the description of those future events. But 4 and 5 is kind of the setup and prologue and transition from the things which are to the things which will take place. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, come up here and I'm going to show you, this is, the, this is the introduction to the things that are now going to be, uh, I'm going to reveal to you future events. Uh, that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, so yes, we're, we're, we're embarking on the transition to the third of those um, series of events. Things which have been, things which are, things that will, will take place. Uh, the scene shifts from matters concerning the church, which we've had in uh, uh, chapters 2 and 3 with these letters. And then the church is never mentioned again in chapters 4 through 19. Uh, we're shifting... Um, on, uh, from this, the things concerning the church on earth to a dramatic scene in heaven. Um, that scene centers on the throat of God here in, in chapter 4 and forms the prologue to future historical events. The tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state is what we're going to get from chapter 6 to 22. Yes? First of all, point um, that the church is no longer mentioned, is that a good argument for I think so. Uh, it's an argument from absence, of course, which is uh, which is not the strongest kind of argument. Uh, the fact that the church is not mentioned uh, is not the same as saying as a as a direct quote saying, and the church is not there. Uh, but it's an it is an argument from absence that the church is not mentioned from four to nineteen. Yeah. Um, so we ha we're going to about to embark on chapter 6 through 22 in this uh, description of the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. And here we have in four and chapter 4 and 5 the prologue or setup to be able to do that. Hey, Pastor Bob, so after yep. these things also we consider, you know, uh, the end of the church age? 
So it's the end of, uh, of the description in the book of Revelation of things that are, and it marks a transition to things that will take place. So it's the book of Revelation is, uh, as uh, chapter 1, verse 19 tells us, has kind of three things that it talks about. It talks about things that have been, it talks about things that are, at the time John is writing, things that are at the time of John's writing. And then it talks about things that will take place in the future. So that's the three kind of different uh, uh, sets of uh, issues that the book of Revelation deals with. Yeah. It's, it seems like uh, in Ezekiel, first chapter, it seems like uh, it, we have about a similar Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go uh, go back and forth between Ezekiel and here. Uh, that's that's absolutely the case. There's lots of parallels between the vision of Ezekiel and the vision of John. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, in keeping with the Lord's uh, promise to spare His church in the hour of testing, uh, the church will be raptured before the time of tribulation, and we'll talk about that as we get into uh, chapter six through nineteen. We have uh, the most detailed description of that in First Thessalonians chapter four. Um, so John looks, uh, as he looked, after these things I looked, and to his astonishment, indicated by his exclamation, behold, so that word is a, uh, is a, uh, uh, a sharp exclamation kind of word, behold, um, he saw a door standing open in heaven. Uh, we also have a door in Ezekiel 1, we have a, a door in Acts chapter 7. Uh, the open door, in this case, admits John in the spirit into heaven, uh, to the very throne room of God. Um, it was heaven to which Christ ascended after his resurrection, and where he has since been seated at the right hand of God. We see descriptions of that other places in scripture, mentions of it in John chapter 14, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 7, Romans chapter 10, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The, this idea that Christ... Um, lived a life um, as a man, then he died, was buried, rose from the dead, and then for a time uh, as a resurrected person walked around on the earth, but then he ascended. And where did he ascend to? He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of, of God. And we have many scripture passages that, uh, that mention that. And so now heaven becomes John's vantage point for most of the remainder of the book of Revelation. So he comes up here in the spirit, uh, not in a physical body, but in the spirit, it says, um, to heaven. And that's his vantage point for the, the vision uh, for the rest of the book. Um, so John notices this open door. He's astonished. Uh, and he also hears the first voice that he heard. And so this is uh, referring back to Revelation chapter 1, that he had heard this voice that sounded like the, the sound of a trumpet, uh, and it was the voice of Christ. It's very clear from Revelation 1, it's the, verse of, uh, the voice of Christ. And John says, and now I'm hearing that same voice again. This is the one I had heard before. Uh, first voice John had heard was the familiar voice, like the sound of a trumpet, that had spoken to him in the first vision. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And so here's that voice again. He hears the voice of Christ again, sees this open door, hears the voice of Christ again. The voice of the risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. 
Um, any questions about this setup before we move on? Yes, Scott. I'm not sure if here or later on, but contrasting John's vision of God in heaven versus Moses, where he, Moses was allowed to see God in his glory, is John seeing God in his glory in the throne, throne room, and because it's in the spirit and taken away from the body, is that his? I believe that's the case. So uh, Moses is in his physical body, and he's allowed to see the glory. Of, he's not really allowed to see the glory of God. He's, you know, God puts his hand over him, passes by. He's allowed to see his back. But John is going in the spirit, actually, to heaven, to the throne room. And so he's really seeing it. Um, and you can tell, as we, as we go through, you'll see more and more, um, John struggles to find words to describe what he's seeing. I mean, he's seeing something that's really indescribable, and he's trying to put words to it the best he can. Um, but there's nothing like it on earth. That's right. There, there are no, there, there are not sufficient words to really describe God's glory. He's doing the best he can, uh, and it comes through. I think that yes, that both those things come through. That wow, the glory of God and. He's probably not able to really explain it all. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's what he's seeing here. And the Lord specifically orders John to come up here, that is to heaven. So that's where Christ is. This door's open. Uh, the voice of Christ says, come up here, where I am uh, in heaven. Uh, John was not swept away into some mystical fantasy land, but transported spiritually into the reality of heaven, the spiritual reality of heaven in the spirit. Uh, not physical body, but in the spirit. Physical bodies in Patmos. And, of course, the central theme, I mentioned this before, but as you read through, you'll see the central theme of John's vision is the throne of God. So here's the throne room with the throne in the middle of it and the one who's on the throne. Um, that's the center of everything here. Uh, here in verse uh, chapter 4. Uh, the throne of God is mentioned 11 times in 11 verses uh, in chapter 4. So that's pretty clear. That's the, the focus uh, of this vision. All eyes drawn to the throne. Uh, the features in this chapter can be outlined in how they relate to this throne of divine glory. Uh, John describes the throne, tells us who is on the throne, what's going on around the throne, what comes from the throne, what stands before the throne, who is in the center and around the throne, and what is being directed towards the throne. Um, so the throne is the center of this vision. Uh, so verse 2. Uh, verse 2, uh, John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. So he hears the voice of Christ saying, Come up here, and immediately he's in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So let's talk about what all that is. Um, so ha have you heard of some of these heavenly tourism kind of books and things where a person says, I went to heaven and this is what it was like? Um, there was one by a little boy, and he later recanted and said, no, it was, I made it all up. Um, so, but not all of them have recanted, but there are these stories. And 
they they don't sound like this um, from the excerpts that I've read. They don't sound like um, you're overwhelmed by awe and fall on your face in worship. That's not what these heavenly tourism books sound like. Um, they tend to emphasize things that are kind of trivial or bizarre. But John's vision is focused on the glorious throne and the one who's on the throne. Um, that's what a real vision of heaven looks like. Um, not, I saw my grandpa there and we, you know, we roasted marshmallows around the fire. <laughs> not that sort of thing. That's not the sort of thing that we see here in a true vision of heaven. Um, we get majesty and glory of the throne and the one on the throne. Uh, that's what we get in a true vision of heaven. So as he was taken out of the familiar dimensions of space and time and into heaven in God's presence in the Spirit's power, John was amazed and astounded by what he saw, causing him to exclaim, Behold, again, for the second time, Behold, in the first verse, Behold, in the second verse, a, a, a word of exclamation. Uh, and the cause of John's amazement was the throne of God and what he saw there, standing in heaven in the throne room of God, all of it. Uh, not a piece of furniture, of course, but a symbol of God's sovereign rule and authority. Uh, we see in Psalm 11 and 103 and Isaiah 66, this mention, these mentions in the Old Testament of the God's throne. Uh, located in the temple of heaven, uh, which is mentioned in many places in Revelation, in chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16. Uh, the temple of heaven um, is a... a common phrase in Revelation that we'll see over and over and over again. Uh, and of course, according to Revelation chapter 21, the heavenly temple is not an actual building. Uh, the, the Revelation chapter one, uh, 21 says, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. They are the temple, according to Revelation chapter 21. The use of the term temple symbolizes God's presence. God is there. God is there in heaven, and He is the temple in heaven. He doesn't need a physical building to be in. Um, the throne was said to be standing here. The throne was standing. See that in verse 2? Because God's sovereign rule is fixed, permanent, and unshakable. Uh, a vision of God's immovable throne reveals His permanent, unchanging, and complete control of the universe. So that throne stands permanent, unshakable. It's a fact. That throne stands. Uh, that's why we see this, that symbol. Uh, and that's, of course, a comforting realization in light of what's about to happen. So this is a prologue to the events of the tribulation, starting in chapter 6. And so it's very important to lay out at the very beginning that that throne stands. Nothing is going to shake that throne. Um, because there's about to be a lot of shaking going on. Um, starting in Revolution chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, but this thing, this throne of God is not to be shaken, will not be shaken, it stands. Um, in much the same way, Isaiah was comforted during a traumatic time in Israel's history by his vision of God's glory. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a, a vision of God's glory at a time of uh, a great tribulation for the nation of Israel. Uh, about to go into, um, uh, be uh, captured by uh, the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. Yes? Um, so, um, the reference to Revelation 21, 
Yeah. What, wouldn't that be looking forward to the new, new heaven and John trying to distinguish it? It is. No yeah, yeah. So that's that's true. Um, that's true. And there is um, a distinction between the fact that in, in the earthly realm, God had a temple. First, he had a tabernacle, right? He had a tabernacle. Then he had a temple. But now he doesn't need a temple. Um, and these visions that John has, of course, in the spirit, are, um, it's kind of the prologue, but it's really looking forward to future events. Um, starting here, there's no time stamp, of course, in Revelation 4 and 5 about exactly when this is. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear that we're making a transition towards things that will take place after this. So that's what Jesus says in in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 is, uh, come up here and I will show you the things that will take place after this. So from that point, he's pointing forward. Um, and so I think we're already at this point where we're, we're pointing forward, starting right here in this prologue uh, to these events. There's a description of events, but it's pointing forward, I think. But yes, yeah, so I, I think it's appropriate then to look forward all the way to Revelation chapter 21 that says that um, makes it clear that there's no temple, uh, no need for a temple. Now we have all sorts of events that are described in the Millennial Kingdom, for example, about a temple. And so, but that's an earthly thing. The Millennial Kingdom is an earthly uh, a kingdom on earth. So I think there's a distinction between heaven and earth and in Revelation 21, we're talking about, of course, the new heaven and the new earth. Um, but I think the key point is that God doesn't need a temple in heaven. And what we have here is a vision of heaven. Does that make sense? No? Well, not quite. Okay. I don't, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to like frame it out and maybe it just be a matter of like continuing to listen. You know, so like there's a lot of temple imagery throughout the rest of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And the angels coming out of the temple. Right. Yep. And things like that. So yep. it's just hard to kind of put together that. And also the idea that everything that was earthly was built upon the shadow of the reality, which is the, the, the heavenly temple. Right. Yeah, so it's a good point. And so, yeah, we'll, I think we'll walk through that as we go through the imagery that is in chapters 6 through 19 in particular. Uh, because you're right, there is a lot of temple imagery. Um, and there is uh, descriptions of things that are in heaven, which we have right here. And then there are descriptions of things that are happening on earth, which we'll see in the description of the tribulation and the, the description of the millennial kingdom. And then we'll f have things that are happening or descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth. So there, there are, you're right, there are, some, uh, there are some differences here. There are some different locations and different times that we're going through. And so maybe it's best to just leave that alone, what the... What the um, the description of the temple as we get to each one of the descriptions of the temple and we'll, we'll talk through those that's that's Pastor fair Bob, yeah um, in this verse uh, chapter speaking of the throne being the very person of, of God um, so um, the throne is um, kind of a symbol of his authority 
Um, so a throne, what is a throne for in the physical world? It's for a king to sit on. And it's a symbol of his authority. The one that's sitting on the throne is the one that's in authority. And so that's the symbolism of a throne, God's authority. Um, and so that's what we have here. Yeah. I tend to agree with Matt. I'm looking at chapter 11, verse 19. It says, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, is opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. Right. And there, so, because that's a heaven, because later yeah. on it says, Then he destroyed the heavens and the earth, yeah. and made a new heaven. And that yeah. heaven is what's mentioned in 20, 22. Yeah, I think that's fair. So we'll, we'll go through what the temple, there's a lot of temple symbolism, and we'll try to go through those as we, as we go. Um, the word temple, of course, is not mentioned here in this verse. Um, it was, um, uh, let me see, where was I going here? Let me back up. Um, how, how did I bring temple in in the first place? Um, uh, let's see. We'll go back to amazement of the throne standing in heaven. Um, oh, the temple comes in because of Old Testament um, Old Testament uh, mentions of the throne also mentioning the temple. So that's how um, that's how I brought temple into the discussion. So um, the the throne and the temple are both. Uh, uh, talked about in Old Testament uh, um, mentions of the throne, and then we have also the temple in heaven mentioned in uh, 7, 11, 14, 15, and 16. Um, so this idea that the throne will be, the temple will be done away with is in Revelation 21, and um, that's not yet. So let me, put, let me put it that way. That's not yet. So yes, um, there are there will be many references to the temple and temple imagery all the way through Revelation until we get to Revelation chapter twenty one when we're the temple is done away with and we have actually the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Uh, let's put it that way. Okay, um, so symbolizing God's presence, uh, the temple and the throne is. A symbol of his authority, his sovereign rule, fixed, permanent, unshakable. Uh, complete control of the universe, and uh, that's good because we're about to go into this time, of, this period of great tribulation where everything seems to be shaken, but the throne of God is not shaken. Um, and so when we look at uh, the state of our modern society and the beliefs, the, the basic belief system of our culture. The basic belief is, by most people in our society, is that mindless, purposeless forces of random chance control the universe. Um, that's what's basically taught in most uh, K through 12 schools, the theory of evolution. Uh, there was no creator, everything was an accident, from goo to you via the zoo. Um, and that random chance rules the universe. Um, but that's not the story or the picture that we get from scripture. Uh, that's not, not what uh, rules the universe. Instead, the sovereign, omnipotent creator of the universe is sitting on his throne as its ruler. And so that's really the picture that we get here. And it's a sharp contrast to the story that our culture and society tends to believe. Uh, so we have a, 
uh, a description of sitting in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, 10, and 12. It depicts Christ's posture of sitting, uh, and it's really talking about rest there. Uh, posture, uh, the term sitting here indicates the posture of reigning. Uh, the thought is not resting because of the work of redemption has been completed or accomplished, but reigning because judgment is about to take place. And so John does not give a name to the one sitting on the throne, but it's obvious who this is. He's the one Isaiah saw in his vision. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah 6 is uh, Isaiah's vision of God sitting on his throne. Uh, This is John having a vision that's very similar. The prophet Micah also saw Uh, the glorious throne of God. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left, 1 Kings 22. Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Uh, Daniel also saw a vision of the heavenly throne room. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. So that's Daniel chapter 7 with Daniel um, having a vision of God on his throne. Uh, And then we get to Ezekiel. Uh, And so Richard brought up Ezekiel, and the vision from Ezekiel is in many ways very similar to what we have here um, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So Ezekiel chapter 1, just a little portion of that vision, uh, Ezekiel says, Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it, and from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So there's, there's a lot of more details in Ezekiel, and we'll talk a little bit about this as we go also, but Ezekiel is obviously seeing a similar vision to what John saw. Um, and so um, one of the points here, this is a sharp contrast with the casual accounts of those who claim to have visions of God, this heavenly tourism thing that has spawned all these books. The, the people that saw these visions, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and now John, are terrified and humbled uh, by these visions. They're not, um, it's nothing like what we see in these these heavenly tourism books. Um, So John then describes he was sitting on the throne as being like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. Uh, So what is that about? Um, so it's, it's reminiscent of the description of the blazing fire and vivid colors from Ezekiel's vision. Um, Revelation 21 also des- uh, describes jasper as crystal clear. Uh, therefore, it's probably best to identify this stone as a diamond, a crystal clear stone. Um, all the shining and flashing facets of the glory of God compared to a diamond Uh, brilliantly reflecting all these colors of the spectrum. 
Uh, a sardius, uh, from which the city of Sardis got its name, is a blood-red ruby. Um, and it expresses the shining beauty of God's glory and may also symbolize God's blazing wrath about to be poured out uh, starting in verse uh, chapter 6. So we have these two stones. Um, and we see, the, and that's a description of the one sitting on the throne. As compared to these two stones, Jasper Stone and Asardius. Um, uh, there's a possible other uh, bit of symbolism there. Um, this, this was in some of the commentaries. These two stones in particular, Sardius and Jasper, were the first and last stone on the priest's breastplate. Uh, so they had 12 stones in Exodus 28 on the priest's breastplate. The first and the last were a ruby and a jasper, representing the firstborn Reuben and the lastborn Benjamin of the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, it may be that those stones depicts God's covenant relationship with Israel. His wrath and judgment will not abrogate that relationship. In fact, it is during the tribulation that largely through the zealous Evangelistic efforts of the 144,000, Revelation 7, all Israel will be saved, Romans 11. Um, and so that could be part of the symbolism, uh, that those particular stones were chosen. Those are the first and last stones on a priest's breast, breastplate. So John's vision of God's throne is not one of peace and comfort. It's flashing glorious magnificence reveals the terrors of God's judgment that are about to take place. So this is uh, the prologue to the judgment uh, coming in the tribulation. And that comes through. Uh, Truly our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12. Uh, and then he moves away from the description of what's uh, of the one on the throne to what's around it. Uh, he just first says that there was a rainbow around it. So we've got the throne, then we've got the one on the throne, and then we've got what's around the throne. And he starts with a rainbow like an emerald. Um, so his description being like an emerald, uh, an emerald is green, of course, so you've got a rainbow, that's many colors, but I guess the dominant color must have been green, or that's the way it appeared to John in this vision. Uh, according to Genesis chapter 9, a rainbow symbolizes God's covenant faithfulness, mercy, and grace. And so uh, we've got this magnificent vision of this one on the throne who's sovereign. But a rainbow in Genesis chapter 9 is um, a symbol of God's faithfulness, mercy, and grace. And so God's attributes, all of his attributes, always operate in perfect harmony. His wrath never operates at the expense of faithfulness. His judgments never abrogate his promises. So all of his attributes are always present all the time in God. Uh, so his wrath and his mercy and grace always uh, exist together. His power and holiness would cause us to live in terror were it not for his faithfulness and mercy. Uh, so those things are all present. Uh, and I think that's what comes out when you talk about a rainbow being present there as well. Uh, and then he goes on in verse 4. He says, around the throne were 24 thrones. So we've got a throne in the center of God's throne room. And then we've got 24 thrones around the one throne of God. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads. 
so that's what he see, what God, uh, John notices next. So first he notices the throne, then he notices who's on the throne. Now he's noticing what's around the throne. Um, it's a rainbow, and then it's also these 24 thrones with 24 elders with white garments and gold crowns. Uh, the identity of these 24 elders has been much debated. Uh, some see them as an order of angelic beings. Uh, it seems best to view them as human representatives of the church, and several lines of evidence point to that conclusion. So let's take a look at those lines of evidence. First, the refer reference to the 24 thrones on which the 24 elders sat indicates that they will reign with Christ. Nowhere in Scripture do angels sit on thrones, nor are they pictured ruling or reigning anywhere. And so um, that would be a difficulty of saying that these must be angelic beings because the angels are never depicted as sitting in God's presence um, or on thrones or reigning in any, any way. <clears throat> Their role is to serve as ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. That was what Matthew chapter 18 says. The church, on the other hand, is repeatedly promised a co-regency with Christ. Um, we see that here in the book of Revelation several times. We see it in Matthew 19 and Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Timothy 2. To be co-regents to, to co with Christ uh, is a scriptural teaching. But nowhere do we see the angels reigning or ruling. Um, so I think that makes sense to say that it's... Uh, um, not angelic beings, but uh, representing human beings. Uh, the Greek word here, presbyteros, um, elders, uh, never used in scripture to refer to angels, uh, but always to men. Uh, it is used to speak of older men in general, uh, presbyteros or elders, that word in Greek in general just means older man. Um, that's the general term. Uh, but the rulers of both Israel and the church are referred to with this word, presbyteros, elders. And so um, we have, of course, uh, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but we have a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so when um, the, uh, the, the Greek Old Testament refers to the rulers of the people, uh, the elders... Uh, it uses this Greek word presbyteros in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so both the Old Testament and New Testament, we have this word elders used for the rulers of the people for human beings. Um, angels do appear in white in John chapter 20, Acts chapter 1. Uh, white garments are commonly are the, are the dress for believers. As uh, someone who's a believer, uh, this white robes is a common symbol. Uh, particularly true in the immediate context of Revelation, Christ promised believers at Sardis that they would be clothed in white garments in Revelation 3.5. He advised the apostate Laodiceans to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself, 3.18. Uh, white garments symbolize Christ's righteousness imputed to believers at salvation. And so uh, it fits, I think, more um, human being, representative human beings, rather than uh, angels, because of all those things. Uh, they have golden crowns on their heads, uh, further evidence that they were humans. Crowns are never promised in Scripture to angels, nor are angels ever seen wearing crowns. 
this word uh, Stephanos, crown, uh, in Greek is the victor's crown worn by those who successfully endured the trial, those who competed and won victory. Uh, Christ promised such a crown to loyal believers in Smyrna, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Same word, Stephanos, in Revelation 2.10. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, wrote Paul. Uh, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. Actually, the same Greek word, Stephanos. Uh, but we an imperishable, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, so this word, uh, this word for crown is used over and over again of somebody who is, gets a victor crown um, after competing. So Paul wrote of this imperishable crown also in 2 Timothy 4.8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, Stephanos, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. And so this is a standard picture of believers receiving this crown. And that's the same crown that we have here uh, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. James wrote of the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James chapter 1. And Peter, the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5. All these are that same Greek word, Stephanos. And so this is clear that this is something that's been promised to believers. Crown. Um, and so here are these human believers in heaven, and they've got crowns. Uh, assuming then that the 24 elders are humans, the question remains as to which humans they represent. So step one, they appear to be human. Step two, uh, what humans are... What, what happened there? Yeah, that is different. Something happened. I don't know what that is. Okay. Um, so what humans do they represent? Um, first, it should be noted uh, that the number... 24 is used in scripture to speak of complete uh, completion and representation. Uh, there were 24 officers of the sanctuary representing the 24 courses of the Levitical priests, uh, 1 Chronicles 24, as well as 24 divisions of singers in the temple, 1 Chronicles 25. Um, so we have that symbol of 24 being uh, complete representation representing all the people with these 24 priests, 24 singers in, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, so some believe that the elders represent Israel. Uh, but while individual Jews have been and will continue to be redeemed throughout history, at the time of this vision, the nation as a whole had not yet been redeemed. Their national judgment and salvation uh, comes during the tribulation. So not yet, not at this time of this vision. Uh, so it comes during the tribulation, Revelation 6 to 19. Largely as a result, as we said, of the 144,000. So when the 24 elders are first introduced, those events have not yet taken place. So it doesn't seem to fit that they would represent Israel. Uh, similarly, the elders cannot... Uh, be tribulation saints since the tribulation hasn't happened yet so they haven't been converted yet so it can't be Israel, it can't be tribulation saints the elders are already in heaven when the tribulation saints arrive, we see that in Revelation 7, the elders are also seen in heaven when other momentous events of the tribulation take place such as when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of Christ, Revelation chapter 11, when the 144,000 gather at Mount Zion in Revelation 14 and when God destroys the Babylonian economic and religious system in, in chapter 19, the, the elders are already there for all those events. Um, some would split the elders into two groups, uh, one representing the church and the other Israel. 
12 and 12. Uh, there's no exegetical reason to do that, however, um, to divide them. Uh, in all their appearance and revelation, they appear as a unified group of 24, never as two groups of 12. So it's unlikely then that 24 elders are angels, or that they represent Israel, or the tribulation saints, or a combination of Israel and the church. So we've eliminated a bunch of possibilities. So what's left? That leaves one most acceptable possibility, that they represent the raptured, glorified, coronated church, which sings the song of redemption in chapter 5, which we'll see next week. Um, they have their crowns and live in the place prepared for them when they have gone to be with Jesus. John chapter 14. Um, so that's the 24 elders. Then what, do we, what else do we see? What else does John see in this vision? Uh, verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So next he sees what's coming out of the throne. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, there's burning lamps there. Flowing out from God's presence symbolized by the throne, John saw a precursor to the firestorm of divine fury about to burst in the sinful world. So the thunder and the lightning are coming. They're building. They're going to be unleashed on the world in chapter 6. Uh, flashes of lightning, sounds of peals of thunder associated with God's presence in Exodus 19 and Ezekiel 1. They are also associated with God's judgment during the tribulation. So in Revelation chapter 8, for example, the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning. So this exact same imagery is going to come in the tribulation in Revelation chapter 8. In Revelation 11, the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. So we're going to see this. This thunder and lightning are building. John sees it in, in chapter 4. It's going to come out in chapter 6 through 19 in the tribulation. Uh, when the seventh angel pours out his bowl, there will be flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, Revelation chapter 16. So John is seeing a preview of the divine wrath from Revelation 6 to 19. Uh, as he looked on the scene, John saw two things before the throne. Um, first, there were seven lamps of fire. Unlike the lampstands in uh, chapter 1. So the, the lamp stands in chapter 1 were the seven churches. Um, this is a fierce blazing light of fire, and it's the seven spirits of God. So not the same seven lamps. Uh, John identifies them as the seven spirits of God. We get an immediate, uh, uh, we get an immediate tr uh, uh, translation, an immediate uh, exposition of what those things are. We don't have to wonder. That's the seven spirits of God. Um, that, and of course that describes the Holy Spirit in all his fullness the seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit uh, the sevenfold representation of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah speaks of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, reverence, and deity Zechariah of power, Revelation 1-4 of grace and peace and here of fiery judgment so the Holy Spirit is there so God the Father, God the Holy Spirit we'll see in, in uh, um, 
Revelation chapter 5, we'll see the Lamb as well. So we'll see all three persons of the Trinity here in this vision. But we've just seen God the Father on His throne. We've seen the seven um, uh, fiery lamps or torches as the Spirit. We'll see the Lamb in uh, chapter 5. Uh, torches are associated with war in Judges 7 and uh, um, Nahum 2, and John's vision depicts God as ready to make war on sinful, rebellious mankind, and the Holy Spirit is his war torch. Uh, the comforter of those who love Christ will be the consumer of those who reject him. So this is a depiction of judgment about to be unleashed on the earth. We've got this prologue to the judgment in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and judgment unleashed in chapter 6. Um, and then we have in, in verse 6, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So uh, we've got this uh, sea of glass and creatures. Uh, sea of glass like crystal. The sea is metaphorical. What John probably saw at the base of the throne was something like a vast pavement of glass shining brilliantly like sparkling crystal. And here we have to say, John's trying to describe things that are indescribable. And he's describing them in the best possible human terms that we can try to understand. So there's something like, uh, like he says, like a sea of glass. That's what it looked like to him. Uh, Exodus 24 records a scene with Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel saw the God of Israel and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So it's not a heavenly world of mists and indistinct apparitions. It's a world of dazzlingly brilliant light, refracting and shining as through crystals and crystal in a manner beyond our ability to describe or imagine. Uh, so next we are introduced to four living creatures uh, who will play a significant role in events unfold. So we see these four creatures. They're going, they're going to be involved in uh, what happens in Revelation 6 to 19. Uh, they are both in the center and around the throne. Uh, an unusual description. In the center and around the throne. So they're moving. And these creatures are moving around. Um, but their station is the inner circle nearest the throne. Uh, Ezekiel 1 also mentions um, these uh, creatures in constant motion. Um, the living creatures, um, they're, of course, they're not animals. Uh, the phrase derives from a single Greek word in the text called zoon. Um, it's a noun, for, uh, noun form of the verb zao, which means to live, so living creature. Uh, Ezekiel gives a description of these creatures, a very long description in uh, Ezekiel 1, 4 to 25. Um, since we're very close to being out of time, I won't read it. I'll let you read it yourself. But there's a, a, a detailed description of these four creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 to 25. Uh, we don't have time to read it now, but please re read it on your own. Um, so uh, specify, Ezekiel has a, a specification of these four living creatures. Uh, the, the cher then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Kabar. Uh, so they're specifically in the vision by Ezekiel identified as cherubim, uh, a kind of angel. Uh, so they're thus angels. Those four living creatures are very specifically identified as angels in Ezekiel's vision where he, he describes them in great detail. Um, and so an exalted order of angels frequently associated in scripture with God's holy power. Um, 
And they were the kind of angels that were uh, stationed at the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Uh, there were two carved cherubim uh, placed in the Holy of Holies, um, symbolically guarding God's holiness uh, in the tabernacle in 1 Kings chapter 6. Uh, Satan, before his fall, was the anointed cherub who covers. His duty was to attend God's throne, Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, so John, like Ezekiel, struggled to find comprehensible terms to describe the scene that's going on before him. Uh, the first creature, he says, is like a lion. The second is like a calf. The third is like a face of a man. The fourth, like a flying eagle, uh, full of eyes, uh, front and behind. This is very difficult for us to imagine what this thing looked like. And so God, John is describing these things uh, the best way he can. Um, Ezekiel's description of the angels notes that each one possessed all four facial features. John says each one looked like a certain face. Ezekiel said they looked kind of like they were four faces together. So obviously something very difficult to describe in human language here, uh, these creatures. Uh, but from John's vantage point, the first creature was like a lion and a calf and like a man and like a flying eagle. Um, so uh, there is a relation to the created world, a lion, wild creatures, a calf, domestic animals, eagle, a flying creature, and man, the pinnacle of creation. Um, so let me, the, let me continue here. Um, the four living creatures, uh, like angels in general, are deeply involved with the coming judgments and the tribulation. So that's why um, the Holy Spirit has these, this, this description here before the tribulation, because we need to know uh, some of these creatures that are going to be involved. So, six wings. Um, oh, we've kind of run out of time. I, I apologize. Um, let, me, um, let me skip to the end here. Um, because we are really out of time. Um, so this is going to continue in, in chapter 5, but there are five great hymns of praise. Uh, there's a choir that gradually increases in size as it goes along. Uh, the hymns of praise begin here with four living creatures. And then in verse 10, it's 24 elders. Uh, and then in chapter 5, we're added harps and vocal praise. And in chapter 5, verse 11, the angels come in. In verse 13, uh, all created beings join in. So this is a crescendo of praise for the Lord that starts with the four living creatures. By the end of chapter 5, it's the entire creation uh, praising God. Um, all right, let me, uh, let me stop there. I apologize. Um, and we'll pick up... Uh, We'll continue with this and go into chapter 5 uh, the next time. Let me, uh, let me close this with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful description we have of your glory in heaven. Uh, what a wonderful thing it is to think about uh, your sovereign glory, uh, your sovereignty over all your creation, and the fact that we will be with you in glory for all eternity one day. What a, what a wonderful thing to look forward to, Lord. Uh, we thank you for that promise uh, that's throughout your scripture. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to, to, to worship you as a, a body of Christ in corporate worship, and we pray that that worship would be acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.